Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. And for those of you that are using those black pew Bibles, that can be found on page 959, where in just a moment I'll be reading 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to 2, 2. If you'd like a memorable word, single word, to help you with this sermon and your Christian life, that word would be beef. B-E-E-F. The first time this word captured my imagination was in the summer between ninth and 10th grade. I was at a summer basketball camp and the camp instructor said, if you'd like to learn how to appropriately shoot a basketball, you need to know the word beef. B stands for the balance that you need. A good basketball shot begins with balance. Then it moves to your eyeballs. You need to see the target. It's gonna be very difficult to make hoops if you don't even see the hoop. Third, elbow. Your elbow needs to be underneath of the ball, not this way, which would then block your eyes, but would also make your shot misdirected. Finally, the all-important follow-through flick of the wrist. That's beef. And I learned that and realized that from my early stages of learning how to play basketball and shoot a basketball, all the way through further advancement in playing in college, I never moved beyond beef. I only drilled down deeper into the fundamentals of figuring out how my balance was affecting my missed shots, where my eyesight needed to be right on target, and how my elbow and follow-through were essentially needed tweaked. Therefore, if this is your first time at church, or you've been a Christian for decades, You never move beyond beef. You never move beyond the basics. And that will be what this sermon is about. The balance that is found in the gospel. Our eyes on a glorious vision of God. That then and only then through the gospel and our eyes on who God is can we ever see with our eyes ourself and our sin. And then how that directs us in our fellowship with one another. In other words, I'm taking the BEEF acronym and I'm using it for this sermon, and that will be our outline. We're going to talk about the basics of the gospel that become our foundation. We're going to talk about how we see God differently because of the gospel, how we see ourselves differently, so that's balance, eyes, and then there's no elbow in this. It's eyes again, and then finally fellowship. Or to put it in a sentence, if we believe the basic gospel message, then we will have a new relationship with God, a new relationship with sin, and a new relationship with one another. I think that's the beef. I'm going to read it for you. First John chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2, and then we're going to walk through this together. Follow along as I read. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, 
we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, the grass withers, the flowers will fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen? Let's walk through this beefy sentence. If we believe the basic gospel, then we will have a new relationship with God, a new relationship with sin, and a new relationship with one another. The if-then comes straight from the whole flow of verses 6 to 10. If this, then this. If this, then that. So I thought it was fitting that we should start with, well, if we believe the basic gospel. Let's start there. This is our foundation. This is the balance that helps us maneuver the tipsy, turvy world that we live in. Sin and suffering, pain and sorrow, highs and lows, the gospel. Brothers and sisters that are Christians, if you believe the gospel, I hope this will encourage your soul to be reminded of it. And if you're here today as a guest or a visitor, this is what we understand, the basic understanding of the whole Bible, the Christian faith. And in summary, I would say it's a message about God, it's a message about sin, and it's a message about Jesus. There's way more to say, but our text tells us something about God, something about sin, and something about Jesus. And these are the three basics that provide the balance for you to understand the scriptures, what it means to have a relationship with God, and we'll unpack those implications. But first, the basic gospel is a message about God. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There are four times in the New Testament where there's a statement of God is and then fill in the blank. This is one of them. The other one comes in chapter 4 of 1 John. God is love. So, our book that we have chosen to walk through for this January to Easter journey has two of the four times where the Bible in the New Testament says God is, and then it tells us about his nature. The other two, if you're wondering, it's John chapter 4, the same author, John, writes in chapter 4, God is spirit. And then the author of Hebrews, whoever that author is, writes, God is a consuming fire. There's your four times. God is spirit. God is consuming fire. God is light. God is love. The message that first John begins with is a statement about God, his nature, who he is. He is 
light. Scholars are somewhat divided as to how to precisely define how John is using light. I don't necessarily think you have to pick and choose, but if you were to start somewhere, I'd say it's life. It's the light that brings forth creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. The first thing he speaks is light. God is light, the source of all life and creation, which is what we see in verses 1 and 2, that this is a message concerning the word, the message of life. And that life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it, and it's, it's the eternal life. Throughout 1 John, we'll notice that light is contrasted with darkness and death. Here, light is about the source of all life, of all being, of creation itself. God is life. There is no life or creation apart from him. This is basic, but it's foundational. And you can keep driving deeper and deeper into it. Don't move past this basic truth that God is the source of life, that in him all of us move and have our being. He is outside of creation and he is in creation. He is not pantheistically in the creation because he is outside of it. And this is what I mean. We're already starting to scratch the depth of the truth that God is life, the source of life, that you don't have life without God sustaining and holding you in his word. He is light and in him there is no darkness, John says. And this contrast between light and darkness, as it's going to be clear through the next few paragraphs, is about his goodness. He is life and this life is good, not evil, not bad. He is the definition of goodness. He is the absolute goodness. I love the fact that you have this is statement right from the get-go. God's not someone who sometimes does good things. He is goodness defined. He is eternal goodness. There is no goodness in the world except for the goodness that's reflecting God's goodness. The ultimate definition of goodness and truth. Think of Jesus' own words, I I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The light that comes through the incarnate Son of God, the life that we've seen of the invisible God who created all things has been made known in Jesus Christ. This light is the life of the person of Christ, the Son. And therefore, a foundational belief for you, if you're going to be a Christian, maintain your Christian faith, convert to Christianity, is that you believe that like the sun has risen, God gives you sight to everything that exists. As C.S. Lewis said, I believe in the Christian faith like I believe in the sun that rises. Not because I see that it exists, but because through it I see everything that exists. Is that true of you? Do you see the world differently through the spectacles of God's holy word, the scriptures? You will not see the second most important foundation of these three, which is sin, if you don't first see the purity and the moral excellence and perfection of God as the definition and standard. You can't look at yourself and see you until you see God. It begins with God. This message 
is about God. Secondly, the gospel basics, the basic balance for our faith, our life, and every day is that we have a truth from God's word about sin. Look at verse 8 and then verse 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make God a liar and his word is not in us because his word has said that we have sinned, that we have fallen short of God's perfect moral glory and standard of goodness. You and I, compared to God, we're not good. Compared to him, we are evil. Sin, by definition, is the word that's used throughout the scriptures to say to miss the target. If this is words that you hear a lot when you're at church, well, what, what's sin? That's what it is. It's a word used to talk about any kind of thing. You're shooting a bow and arrow, and you don't just not hit the bullseye. You miss the whole target. Somebody bumped and hit your elbow, and then it shoots off into the sky. That's sin, except the Bible is saying that our target is the goal for which God created us in the first place. We were humans made in God's image to reflect his love and authority in the earth, to rule and have dominion like he would, as a mirrored reflection of heavenly realities here on the earth. This is actually why Jesus prayed the prayer, may your kingdom come and may your will be done here on earth, reflecting the rule and reign in heaven. That's our calling. That's our vocation. That's our mission. Even before sin entered the world, that was what Adam and Eve were commanded and commissioned to do, to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth with the rule of God's loving, kind, generous authority. But they missed the mark, and so have you. We've sinned. We've sinned not just once in a while or every couple times a year, we sin as a way of life, as a, as a practice, as a way of walking in this world. That's the Bible's explanation in a short, brief, foundational summary about sin. We've sinned. And in fact, John's writing this because the people that we talked about last Sunday, the basic audience that he's concerned with are false teachers that have the Jewish scriptures at their disposal, and they're saying, we've not sinned. Not that they've never sinned, but they've gotten to a point where through their righteous law-keeping, think in mind the rich young ruler. I've kept all the commandments. Think Paul in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, according to the law, blameless. There would have been people that have been going around and saying, I don't think I need to confess sin. I certainly don't need to confess it to Jesus Christ. I don't think he's the Messiah. This is an important point to understand. Before the gospel makes any sense in the good news, we have to have the basic foundation of the bad news. We have sinned. We should not be the people that he's describing. If we say that we have not sinned, we should be the sort of people that verse 9 describes. Confessing our sins, trusting in his blood to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, which brings us to basic truth about the gospel. Number three, it's a truth about God. It's a truth about sin. It's a truth about Jesus. Jesus is the light of God's glory and the revelation of the invisible God made visible, manifest, the eternal life, the access to heaven. He, fully God and fully man, took on human flesh in order to die on a cross 
for our sins. In him, there was no darkness. He who knew no sin became sin on the cross for us, just like the Father in heaven and the Spirit that empowered him. There was not an ounce of darkness, none whatsoever. A human who never missed the mark, who never had a sinful thought, who never had a a bad desire, never had a a grouchy day that he used as an excuse to say, well, I, I didn't have enough sleep last night. He went without sleep. He was tired. He slept, and yet he never sinned. That's Jesus, the sinless God-man who took your place. When he died on the cross, he became our substitute. He died the death that you and I deserved. And because of God's righteousness and justice, sin was punished on the cross. He condemned sin in his flesh so that the unjust and the unrighteous could become righteous, that we would have the righteousness of God. This is what verse 7 says, that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So if we walk in the light like he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Or look at the truth in verse 9. If we confess our sins, God will be faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because of what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My children, I'm writing all this so that you won't sin. I'm trying to encourage you not to sin. But... You will sin. It's another way to translate that. If anyone does, presuming you will sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins only, but also the sins of the whole world. Most likely, this is a reference to the idea that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he was buried in the ground, he then rose again from the dead, and then ascended into heaven. He is our advocate our defense attorney, our paraclesis, the one who stands para beside, who then calls out kaleo, paraclete. That's the word used here. He's standing beside like a defense attorney in a courtroom. Do you remember the Old Testament picture of the courtroom? Job chapter one. Who's the one that's speaking to the one on the throne? It's the accuser. The accusing attorney is saying, well, what about them? And then through the gospel, through the death of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection and ascension, you have one who's not accusing the humans on the earth, but is defending them, standing in your place on the basis of the gospel. The offering on the cross ascended all the way into heaven, and there in heaven, he speaks up for us, which is why if you confess your sin and unite yourself to Jesus by faith, it would be unjust for him to punish you for those sins. He is just and righteous and will forgive you of your sins because there is one standing there before him and he is always living to intercede for us. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. It's a truth about the holiness of God, about the sinfulness of man, and the incredible love and plan of God through Jesus to save and rescue sinners and then reinstitute them into the very beginning plan from Genesis 1 to image God to be the mirror that reflects the reign and rule of God, to be filled with the Spirit of God through the outpouring of God's presence into our hearts on the basis of God's generous merits in Christ, not our good works. Is this true? Is this accurate? Do you believe this? 
Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, this is the faith that is once for all delivered to all the saints for the last 2,000 years. This is what makes us Christian. A faith that we have in God, a confession that we have about ourselves and sin, and the belief and trust and the hope in Jesus Christ. Does this resonate with you? Does it resonate with all of you? This is history. If Buddha was found out to never have existed, ever, would that make Buddhism completely fall apart like a house of cards? Answer, no. If Jesus Christ were to be proven to have never existed, to have never died on the cross, to have never appeared to hundreds of people as the ascended, resurrected Lord, Christianity would fall apart. There would be no Christian faith. It would be a waste of time for us to live here and worship here and gather together each Sunday. I hope that this reminder of the basics of the gospel helps set the stage for not only the rest of this sermon, but just as a good refresher. This is what we believe. This is what you should believe. This is why he's the savior of the world. And in Acts chapter 17, it says, in past days, he let sins pass over, was ignorant of sins, a, a kind of looking over certain sins. But now that the light of Christ has come, he demands everyone everywhere to repent because there is a savior for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. So now we need to apply the gospel to our lives. The basics of the gospel of God, of sin, and of Jesus Christ leads us to the second half of our statement. If we believe this message, if that's you today, then we will, not maybe, not sometimes, we will have a new relationship with God, a new relationship with sin, and a new relationship with one another. And that's my attempt to hopefully summarize what this opening section of 1 John is trying to teach us. And so, realize that we are not just a church that cares about orthodoxy, correct doctrine. We are a church that cares also about orthopraxy, correct, straight practice. Statements of faith, what we believe, and church covenant commitments, how we live. They are not two foreign ideas. They come together like two sides of the same coin. I hope you understand the intimate relationship between if you believe the gospel, then you will have a brand new way of seeing God, your sin, and then relating to one another. Let me just illustrate this. If I believe that I'm married, that almost now, 18 and a half years ago, I committed to a marriage relationship, like, okay, I'm married. Well, then the relationship that I had with my now wife, Christine, is different now that we're married. Things change. We move in together. We share finances. We do life together in a much more profound and deeper way. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the Messiah, it changes things. You can't just go around and be like, well, I'm going to live like I'm single. I'm going to drive home and then something come up and then decide I'm just going to go hang out with my buddies for the rest of the night. And then when I come home at 11 o'clock at night, my wife's like, where have you been? What do you mean? Well, you didn't tell me where you were. You said you were just going to go meet up with someone for a one-hour meeting and then by 8 o'clock you'd be home. You didn't come home at 8 o'clock. You came home at 11. Things change. She's not going to be pleased and think that if I just go around and living like I can do whatever I want. Singleness to marriage life, 
in a much more profound and more serious way. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The relationship that we have with God should be radically different once we know the gospel. A new relationship with God. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We were made for fellowship with God. God intends for us to join him in fellowship. Look at verse 3, just before that. Notice the, the link between the introduction of 1 John and then our section. That which we've seen and we've heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship, that's that amazing, beautiful, dense word that we talked about a couple weeks ago, koinonia. You share something in common. You, you share something in common with the eternal light, the one who is the other? Yes, we are created by him. We reflect him. He wants to be in a relationship with us. So if we go around and say we have a relationship, a partnership, a fellowship with God, but yet we walk as if we're running the show, as if we're in charge, then we are lying to ourselves and God and everyone else. We will love God instead of hate his truth. This gospel message that he made propitiation for our sins. That's the word that means that the guilt of our sin has been removed and the anger that God has towards sinners has also been appeased. It's not a one or the other in my opinion. I think it's a both and. John wants you to know that God is right because of his moral excellence and goodness, his having no darkness in him at all, that if you're going to be united to him, you can't be a sinner. You can't be unclean. So if you are a sinner, then you need to confess your sins and realize that he's going to wash your sins in the, by the blood of Jesus and that you can be united to him. This demonstrates his love. The other time propitiation is used related to Jesus is in 1 John 4, and it's to demonstrate the love that God has toward us as sinners. God is favorable toward us. Oh, how many times do I hear from church members who believe the gospel? The basics. I know that. God, sin, Jesus. Got it, got it, got it. Good. But yet, when they're honest with me, they confess, I think God's angry with me. I think that after all the bad things that happened to me this last year, I just don't think he loves me. How quick is that your impulse? Be honest. There's no point acting like God doesn't know your thoughts, your feelings, your anger toward him. But yet the gospel, the basics of the gospel is that he sent his son to deal once and for all for your sin. And he loves you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But yet if you were to ask many people when they're having a hard time, when suffering comes into their life, they think that God's punishing them, condemning them. That's a failure to believe the basics. You don't have your feet right. we got to start at the very beginning. God sent his son to deal with condemnation. Come to him. Run to him. Love the light. Uh, the light will expose my sin. Eh, I don't want to do that. No! The light will expose your sin so it can be washed. 
Don't run from the light. Don't like Adam and Eve as soon as you heard the sound, the voice of God coming into the garden. What did they do? They covered themselves and they ran and they hid. What a profound, simple, but true description of what so many of us do. When we sin, we don't run to the light. We run from it. We hide. We let it perpetuate in the darkness. A new relationship with God would mean his shining light is not to embarrass us. Not to shine the light to say, look at them. Look how bad they are. He's just laughing at us. It's to bring you out of the light to then wash you up, to get you clean, to embrace you with his loving hug. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this God is so for you and not against you? And that we know that without any doubt because of his son. He sent forth his son. Don't hide from him in that shameful fear. Run to him with confidence and reverence. Submit to his absolute rule and authority that he is the definition of light, goodness, truth. Know that if God is going to be God, if you would like to take the advanced course of God being light, start really digging into whether or not you only agree with God when it already confirms what you already thought in the first place. How many people, they're like, amen, amen, amen. Nope, not that one. Amen, amen. I like that verse, not that one. Then God is not God. He is not the pure, absolute definer of light and truth. He is the God that you have made in your own image. The God that reflects your time and place and culture. The new relationship we have with God is to just humbly admit we're a creature, we're a sinful creature, but he's cleansed us by his grace, his mercy, his justice, and therefore you can trust his word above all of your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, your fickle wavering. You can just trust him. He's good. Amen? If we believe the basics of the gospel, then we'll have a new relationship with God. We'll run to the light. We will love the light. We will see the goodness of the light. Second, we'll have a new relationship with ourselves. Only when the gospel is foundational will we see God rightly and then be able to look down and see ourselves. A new relationship with sin. For the sake of devices to remember this, three C words. We confess, we cringe, and we cast our sin. A new relationship with sin. This is extremely, extremely important. This is a repeat of what we talked about last week. A Christian is not somebody who stops sinning. It's somebody who confesses, who cringes, and casts their sin upon the mercy of Jesus. Do you understand the difference between there are people who sin and then there are people who confess and cringe and cast their sin on Jesus? All of us in this room are sinners. But there are some of us in this room, perhaps, hopefully, most of us, where we're that second kind. We're the kind of sinner that confesses, cringes, and casts. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. This is completely contrasting the two verses around it. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves. The truth's not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. So then what should we do with our sin? Confess it. You can either confess your sin so Jesus will cover it by his blood or conceal your sin like Adam and Eve in the garden and cover it with some sort of psychological mind game. Blame shifting. She did it. She's the one. Hey, it was that serpent that you put it and let in this garden. That woman you gave me? There we go, finding ourselves yet again back in that garden story, realizing how profoundly it describes so many of us in our sinful rebellion against God. Human responsibility, being honest to agree with God's word about who we are and the sins we've confessed and the sins that we've committed. That's what confession is. It's agreeing with God what his word says about our sin, not justifying rationalizing, psychologicalizing, or creating some sort of reason why we sinned, or even just flat out denying that's not sin, even though an entire congregation or the community of faith for thousands of years has said, this is sin and this is righteousness. Uh, We know better now. We've become smarter. The Christian faith should be one where we understand this is sin And this is not sin as it relates to the basics of the Ten Commandments or the general teaching that we find throughout the history of the Christian church. Sure, Christians might have gray areas and all kinds of things we have to sort through, but that's not what John is trying to address. He's talking about basic things that Christians and Jewish people before that would have said, that's sin. For example, we've mentioned that this is a kind of pre-Gnosticism which is the special secret knowledge that you get from the non-material spirit world in heaven, that Jesus' body was part of this bad material world, but that the truth, the light, is found in the non-material spiritual world. That's the debate that's going on that John is addressing in 1 John. In light of that, it would be something simple and obvious, something like, I don't think that it's a problem if I have multiple wives and sleep around. No, that's sin. That's clearly sin. And that would be an example of saying that when the physical world and what I do doesn't matter because I'm just trying to mentally and have my soul ascent to heaven and that one day I'll be freed from these terrible physical bodies. These are the sort of things that John's trying to say. No, no, if we confess that he has forever cemented himself to creation through the incarnation, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the coming bodily return, then what you do with your body matters. How you live in this world, how you walk, it matters. So you can't say, I have fellowship with God. And then you deny your sin or say that you haven't sinned at all. No, we confess, we agree with God's word. Not trying to cover it up, not trying to conceal it, but cringe, hate it. We walk in the light and not in the dark. John wants you to know that absence of sin will only happen when we are perfected upon Christ's return when we see him face to face. Until then, we cringe, we hate, we love the promised return of Jesus. We do not love the things of this world as 1 John 2.17 says. Its desires like the darkness in chapter 2 verse 8, 
they're passing away. They're momentary, they're fleeting. Love, the light, it lasts. It's eternal life. Cast your sins on Jesus. Believe wholeheartedly in the basic message of the gospel. He paid for all sin. Did you guys catch that? Verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from some sin, one or two sins, just the really bad sins, all sin. This is good news. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So confess, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus Christ is that savior. Hallelujah. Amen. They have been paid for on the cross. Amen. I write these things so that you would be encouraged, so that you won't sin, so that you would find strength for your soul, assurance of salvation when you do sin. I was just thinking through this, and here's just a few meditations as it relates to verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation uh, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have a new relationship with God, a new relationship with sin, and then we have a new relationship with Jesus. Jesus is our advocate, our defense attorney, the one who speaks up on our behalf. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to come before God with your lists and your reasons and your resumes. You can just point to him. That's my advocate. That's my defense attorney. He is just and will forgive you of all of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness because of God's justice, his rightness, not just because of his love. That's true. John is going to expound the love of God powerfully. But he is going to forgive you because of justice paid, righteousness maintained, the cross sufficient. He came, his physical presence in his human body, the Son of God, hung on a cross. And that blood, it cleanses us from our sin. But then he left. He's at the Father's right hand. He's in heaven. And this absence tells us that right now, there is a human satisfying God's wrath ever before him. He will look down from heaven and only see that there is the blood of Jesus covering over your sin. Hallelujah, like the blood over the doorposts when the angel of the Lord comes through in the book of Exodus. Those with blood over their door, they live. And those without, they die. There is life and light found in Christ. Revel in the absence of Jesus from earth, knowing that that means he's defending you in heaven. He came. In the manger we just celebrated over Advent and Christmas, we have an advocate, Jesus. He took our, our place, not just our place as a grown human adult, but even as a baby. He walked this earth from infancy to adulthood for 30 some years in sinless moral perfection and beauty. That's why he can be our advocate. He knows what it's like to be human in every way that we are tempted yet without sin. So he came and became a man who walked in our shoes, so to speak, but then he left. Do you miss him? Do you long for him? 
Or do you take comfort in knowing that he is forever interceding and praying for us according to Hebrews chapter 7 as our high priest? He came. He died. He was buried in the tomb. And then sin was condemned and punished through the penalty, the wages of sin. It's death. And Jesus died. But then he left. Our relationship with Jesus, it's, it's different. You and I, we don't sit next to Jesus in the pews. We don't go on long walks and have him expound for us the whole Old Testament, how it points to him. His physical absence from the earth should remind all of you that this present earth, the way it's constructed and its power structures and its desires, it is passing away. There is another home and it's not here. His absence actually should motivate you to holiness, to realize the whole kingdom has not come yet. There is a coming that has occurred. There is a presence that has already appeared. But there is an absence that should every single day that you long to see the face of Jesus remind you that this world is not our home. I am going to prepare a place for you. So he left to definitively and prophetically preach to all of us. Guys, do not get comfortable. Live like nomads. Don't get settled down. Realize that the world and all of its desires, they're passing away. That's why I think he says, in both instances, that he is writing these things in order to encourage you to not sin. Because when you do sin, you have an advocate. But then when you see him there, you realize, and he's not back yet. That should fuel the flame for obedience to walk in fellowship with God. New relationship with God, new relationship with sin, new relationship with one another. Finally, the F of our beef. The foundations of the gospel have been laid. We've seen God and ourselves, hopefully more accurately. Finally, we need to realize that all of what John is saying is about how the gospel necessitates love for one another. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have koinonia, partnership, intimate relationship with each other, with other Christians on this earth. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, drop down. This is next week's sermon, but it'll be helpful for to just realize the light and darkness imagery appears again at the very end of this section. And he's going to talk about our love for one another. Chapter 2, verse 9, whoever says that he is in the light but then hates his brother, no, they're actually still in the darkness. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother is abiding in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and they walk in the darkness, and they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. We have a new relationship with Christians with the church, with covenant commitments, with how we do life with one another who profess the true gospel and the faith that was once for all delivered, that Jesus Christ is our only hope. I hope it's clear for many of you. We made an announcement earlier that there's a membership class, and here's one basic takeaway from that class. We care about doctrine, and we care about devotion, the way you live, both. True membership in a local church is not just about, I got the facts right, I, 
I aced the Bible quiz on who's God, who are sinners, and what did Jesus do? But the way that that impacts our living and our practice, professing faith and saying, I've got a relationship with God. I believe in God. I have prayed a prayer one time. Isn't this whole text saying there's a lot of people that are saying that they love God? They're professing faith and their words are cheap. In fact, their words are full of deceit. They're lying to themselves and they're lying to everyone else as they go around and say, I'm following God. But yet they hate their brothers and sisters. They're not walking in the light, the truth, the fellowship. It includes both. And this is, I think, pretty basic, but we don't move beyond it. The common bond that we have is our agreement together on God's righteous rule and authority and goodness, his otherness. The common bond we share is that we share an assessment about sin and we confess sins together. Isn't it great that in a regular practice you can come to church and even if you've not been in the habit of confessing sin, allow the person like Sybil did earlier, say, God, we confess. We've sinned against you in thought and word and deed. We've not loved our neighbor as ourself. God, we have not loved you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and strength. God, we're a collection of sinners. Be merciful to us and forgive us on the basis of Jesus Christ. At Embassy, there's a reason why our order of worship, our liturgy, includes this idea of public corporate confession. It's what makes us bonded together because we say amen at the end of those prayers, sometimes out loud, sometimes in your heart. But either way, a true Christian would have to assess themselves the same way. We're sinners in need of a Savior, and therefore we hope in Christ together. Our koinonia, it's about our belief in God, our assessment about sin, and the hope we have in Christ to work together to help each other in our faith, and then to share the gospel to the ends of the earth, knowing that if this is the Savior, not just for a certain tribe or certain geographical region of the earth in the Middle East, but this is the Savior for the whole world, that's a big task. We should work together to pray for the laborers to go into the harvest field that is plentiful. We should give money, dollars, thousands of them, the lost around the world. We should send some of our members to the nations and tell them that's a good idea. We should go to cross conference and hear updates and reports about why it's so helpful to take some days out of your week and hear about how the gospel motivates us to do mission work and evangelism. Because our hope is in Christ. It's not in money, it's not in cars, houses, jobs, family. It's in the only hope that there is. The light has come into the world. And even though he was swallowed up by the darkness of death, he overcame the world. So take heart. He has overcome the world. And he will make it right. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we want to pray in his name. We want to pray with confession that we admit we're sinners. You're holy and we are not. We're not morally excellent and pure. And Lord, we, we desperately need reminding that you have in fact demonstrated your great love for us, that your wrath has been appeased, that your favor toward us is not in doubt or in question. Regardless of how many sins we committed this last week, 
there is an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I pray we would look to him, we would see him, and it would be a reflection of your great love and care and commitment to renew your plan of creation through the gospel and that your Holy Spirit would get us on track for the very original plan that you had established from the beginning. God, thank you for the, the clarity of your word in First John. Encourage us. Uh, remind us of the things that we needed to hear today. And may it bear good fruit as we walk in the light together. In Jesus' name, amen.